So I'm going to begin reading at 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. Everyone who breaks the law, in fact, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning, because he has been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. Let me pray that God would apply his word to our lives. Father, we thank you for the teaching of the apostles, for the clarity of the gospel message that Jesus died to forgive us of our sins. And so, Lord, I pray that this would be good news for us today. But, Lord, let us be honest about our need for Jesus. Let us be willing to confess our sins, to be honest with ourselves before you, so we would find hope in Jesus, our Savior. Father, we give you thanks for what you have done for us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We're really bad at self-assessments. All right, now, maybe that's not true for you. Maybe you're exceptional. But most Americans are terrible at self-evaluations. Cornell psychology professor David Dunning says that most of us, when asked to rate how good we do our jobs, how well we do the work that's given to us, most of us rate ourselves as better than average. It, it, the, we, we think we have more expertise. We think we have more leadership skills. We think we are more sophisticated than the people that we work with. For example, engineers were asked to rank themselves. How many of them thought that they ranked in the top 5% of engineers at their companies? What do you think? More than 40% of the engineers asked think they are in the top 5%. And the other 60% were probably just trying to be humble by answering the question. And, and, and it's true in all areas of life. Motorcyclists typically think they are less likely to cause accidents than other motorcyclists. We think we're better drivers than average. 
most of us. And when surgical residents were asked to predict their own scores on an upcoming exam, they were terrible at predicting their scores. But their peers and their supervisors could basically nail the score before the exam was even taken. See, people are better at pointing out our failures than we are at acknowledging them. As Americans, we flunk self-assessment. Now maybe you grew up in a part of the world where you were taught a more humble approach. Or maybe you're just sitting here thinking to yourself, yep, I agree most people are terrible at self-assessments, but not me, I'm better than average. See, what the Apostle John is doing for us is he's giving us a spiritual assessment right here in the middle of his letter. He shows us that we're worse than we could have imagined. But then he reminds us that Jesus is better than we could have dare hoped. Let's first look at the horror of sin as it's presented to us, at the horror of who we are as sinners. Sin is, this passage tells us, pollution. We, we see that in, in verse 3, that, that we need to be purified. We've been polluted. We've been corrupted. It's like taking a, a, a glass of, of clean drinking water, and, and while, I mean, there's just a little diphtheria in it, well, just a little is enough to make you not drink it. See, we are polluted by our sin. And, and look with me at verse 4. John is writing to the church. He's writing to Christians, people that already claim to follow after Jesus. And he says, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. All right, now we, we might, on, on the initial reading, just think, okay, so there are a bunch of rules. God made up some rules, and then if you break those rules, you're in trouble. And at times, it might feel like the rules, like, they just feel arbitrary. Maybe God just, he just made up some random rules. He, he decided, well, this is going to be fun, but, but, but that's no fun, and, and this is okay, and that's not okay. But, but really, when you, when you, and you're just going to have to take my word for this, because I don't have time to prove this to you this morning and take you through all of the passages in the Old Testament. But this word is a rare word in the New Testament, but it's used all over the place in the Old Testament, this idea of lawlessness. And it's much more than just breaking a rule. It's actually a whole life that is oriented against God, a life that is under the power of a, an evil, the, 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 under the power and influence of evil. One, one commentator says, that, what, what does this word lawlessness mean? It is a Satan-inspired rejection of God. It's not just like casually breaking a rule. It is orienting your entire self against God. And what is... What is John telling the church? Everyone who sins is breaking God's law because sin is utter rebellion against a good and loving God. He's forcing us to admit our, uh, the, the horror of who we are. He, he, then, he then makes it explicit. We are under the power of the devil when we sin. Look at, look at verse 8. He who does what is sinful is of the devil. Because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. See, when you sin, when you break God's law, when you rebel against God, when you do that which even in your own heart you know is not right, then you have allied yourself with the devil. So much so that, that in verse 10, he will call sinners children of the devil. You are part of his family. Now, if I'd asked you to give an assessment today of yourself, would you have used that kind of language? Or would you have 
tried to just, well, let, let's skip the bad parts. If my supervisor is going to have to read this, I should probably shade it in a, in a more positive direction. To which John is telling us is that as sinners, we have rebelled against God. We are broken. The problem is so great that, that when we sin, it's as if we're living as children of the devil. He's showing us the overwhelming power of sin. It, and you feel it at times, right? The crushing pressures of life, and you, you feel like you've been backed into a corner. You feel overwhelmed and broken. You feel like, what, what else was I supposed to do here? How could I have, how could I have been expected to, to, to persevere in that instance? See, you might not have walked in here calling it sin. You might not have used the, a theological word for the problems in your life. What John is forcing us to admit when we find ourselves acting in ways that hurt ourselves, that hurt others, is that we are sinners. And so the problem, the assessment is terrible. You are a child of the devil when you rebel against God by sinning. But then he shows us the greatness of Jesus, and it, it's just interwoven through this passage. Jesus, look at verse 29, is the one who is righteous. And, and we can know this. That's, that's actually what, what he's been proving to us in the, the opening chapters of this letter, that Jesus is the one who always does what is right. He'll explicitly say, say that in verse 7, that, that Jesus is righteous. He is the righteous one. And we're reminded that Jesus is coming again. He not only was here once, all right, so the story of, of history is God created the world, people rebelled against God, but God promised a rescuer. And in the, the story of history, then God sent his own son, Jesus, here. He appeared he came. He was here in the flesh. Those are the words that we read in our call to worship, that he was with us. John has shown that he died for our sins, but then he ascended into heaven. But, but John is telling us, okay, but now we're waiting. We're in the time in which Jesus has gone to heaven, but we're waiting for him to come back, to appear again. That's, that's the basic timeline of, of history that the Bible explains to us. Jesus is coming again. That's what he says in verse 28. And now, dear children, continue in him. That was the lesson we've been learning, that we hold fast to Jesus, we pursue Jesus. Continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him. See, the promise of Jesus' return is sure. The reality of who he is will be fully seen when he comes again. And then John is, is explicit in what Jesus has done for us. Jesus is our Savior. He is the one who rescues us from sin. He's the one who, verse 5 tells us, takes away our sins. That's why he came the first time. He, it's, it's the same word of when he'll appear again, that, that he appeared the first time. In verse 5, you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And he is the perfectly pure and righteous one. In him is no sin. Jesus is our Savior. But that means putting your trust in him, relying on him, not trusting in yourself. It, it, it means accepting the forgiveness that's offered to you, trusting in what Jesus has done. And then Jesus is the destroyer of the devil. We, we, we've used, we, we just talked about that, how, of, of if you are sinning, then you are a child of the devil. But why did Jesus come? Verse 8, Jesus, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Jesus is a destroyer of evil, of Satan's power. That's why he came. 
was to take the, the evil influence of Satan and crush it, to destroy death, death that came into the world through sin, to, to bind the powers of Satan, to crush evil. Jesus is the one who gains the victory. Right now, I'm talking about the devil. And so I know some of you, you think this sounds fantastical. And, and, and fantastical then, that, that like, well, that means fictional. It means it's a myth. It means it's a story. And we're, you might think, we're, we're much too sophisticated as modern people to believe in fairy tales like the devil and demons and, and spiritual powers. Because we understand more of the world today. And so what people used to think was, was the devil, we just know it was like germs. And you can use soap to destroy that. So you don't need a destroyer of the devil. But, 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 I, but I saw a news story this week that reminded me how little we know about the world, about the universe. All right, it was a, it was a, a, a news story from, from LiveScience.com. Theoretical astrophysicists, they created an artificial intelligence in order to run programs to see how the universe was created. Okay, now, that's mind-boggling enough to try and figure out what's going on. That they're trying, to, they're trying to run different scenarios, put in different parameters to see if they can understand these theoretical astrophysicists, how the universe began. But the, the, the perplexing part of the story was not that they don't understand how the world began, because that's kind of a big question, a difficult task for observable science to get back to. The, the, the headline in the news story was that, that scientists created a replica of our universe and they have no idea how it works. They don't understand how their AI works. They, uh, the, one of the, the astrophysicists, she was a co-author of the study, Shirley Ho, she explains it like this. She says, it's like teaching image recognition software, but you've only given them pictures of cats and dogs. And suddenly, they understand and can pick out every elephant. She said, we don't understand how the computer program is even doing what it's doing. When we put in stuff that it shouldn't have understood, it could calculate for it. When we put in dark matter and black holes, it, it understood all of it. See, the, 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 the point is not that we understand what the astrophysicists are working on, because a few of you are smart enough and your technical skills are, are good enough that you would understand that. But the, the point I want to make is that the scientists, not only do they not understand the universe that God created, they don't understand the computer program that they created. See, sometimes we should be a little bit more humble. And, and actually, I think when you read the article, that's, that's the approach the scientists are taking, an approach of humility to say, maybe we don't know as much about the universe we live in as we thought we did. And so my point this morning is not that you figure out through, through this study the origins of the universe. I think God makes that clear at the beginning of the Bible. The, the point is for you to just stop and say, maybe we don't know as much as we think we know. And maybe there are some things in a complex and enormous universe that would be beyond that which we could see, or which we could observe, or which we could run through a computer simulation. Maybe there is a spiritual realm at work. And so maybe we would need to be humble enough to look for meaningful answers from God. See, that's all I'm asking for. I'm just asking for enough humility to say, it's just possible that I might not know as much as God knows about the universe. See, that's actually the humble position, which is the position then that has to admit the reality of the devil. 
See, but that's the bad news. The good news is Jesus is the destroyer of the devil. Jesus gains the victory. Jesus is the righteous one. Jesus saves us from our sins. Jesus is coming again. And so then what does this mean for us? So we've seen the terrible news that you are a child of the devil when you rebel against God. But we've seen the great news then that Jesus answers all of those problems. And so what's expected from us? See, we're, we're told then to pursue a life that rejects sin. We're told to, 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 to run from sin, to flee from sin, to pursue Jesus. Let's just, let's just look at, at how John is making this argument in this passage. Look back again at verse 28 of chapter 2. He's writing to the church, Now, my dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. He's telling us that you and I, we can know that we will stand as righteous in the judgment of God. But, but how could you be confident and unashamed at the return of Christ as the judge and the destroyer of evil if you are as evil as John has told us? See, our only hope is that we've put our trust in another who is righteous, Jesus, who is the pure one, who is perfect, who is without sin. It means to transfer our allegiance from ourselves to Jesus to find forgiveness in him so that we can stand as confident. See, we're called to be confident and unashamed. We're called, John is telling us, to do what is right. He says it in verse 29 explicitly. If you know that Jesus is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. In John's mind, the, the argument is pretty simple. Jesus is good Therefore, be good. Jesus is righteous. Therefore, pursue righteousness. Jesus is holy. Therefore, you should be holy. He's, he's saying, be like the one you were made to be like. He, he, sa he says it then in, in verse 3. The, the, he begins to make the, the, the connection between who we're called to be and who Jesus is. He, he makes it explicitly multiple times in this passage. Look at verse 3 of chapter 3. Everyone who has this hope that Jesus is coming again Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself. So what are Christians are you meant to do? You're meant to remove the sin from your life, to destroy the sin in your life, to clean yourself up. Why? Verse 3, because Jesus is pure. All right, now, it's important to understand the, the, the scenario. And, 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 and we, we talk about this pretty regularly here at the church, that, that you have to get the order right. You're not, you're not called to clean up yourself so that Jesus will love you. I mean, this isn't, this isn't middle school dodgeball where you're getting chosen because of how great you are at throwing something. No, you're terrible at this game. You, you break every rule. You actually run around the gym screaming and punching people. No one wants you on their team because you are a child of the devil. See, you don't clean yourself up so that well, Jesus will love you. Jesus loves you, and he cleans you up. And he's asking you to participate in that. You have been purified by Jesus because he is pure. So purify yourself. See, and you have to get the order right because it, it depends on who you're trusting. If you have to clean yourself up, then you're trusting yourself. But who are you in your sinful state? child of the devil. You're lawless. You're a lawbreaker. You're, you're, you're one who's in allegiance with Satan. You can't do that work. But Jesus forgives your sins. 
So everyone who has this, verse 3, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as Jesus is pure. See, we can't keep on sinning. John says it explicitly in verse 6, no one who lives in Jesus keeps on sinning. Or verse 9, we, we cannot go on sinning because we belong to God. Because, look at verse 9, no one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. The hope of the gospel, the power of God's spirit, the cleansing work of Jesus. God has transformed us. We're born of God. No one who is born in sin, of, of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. You are a new creation. You're not a child of the devil anymore. You are a child of God. And so live like a child of God. You are meant to look like your father, like father, like son. It should be a description, not of our physical appearance, but of our spiritual condition. We should look like God. We should look like Jesus because we have been born again. We need to call sin what it is. We need to stop justifying sin in ourselves. And so that, that means you, you need the power of God's Word to convict you of sin. But you need other people in your, life, in your life because you're terrible at doing this for yourself. You need other people that, that you trust enough, that you've given enough permission to, to, to expose sin in you. People that will persist past your immediate, rec- your, your immediate defenses of, shut up, you're worse than I am. I just said shut up in church, didn't I? You need somebody who's going to love you enough to, to continue to pursue you even as you push them away so that they can point you back to the hope of the gospel. I mean, we do what is righteous, verse 7 tells us, because Jesus is righteous. See, we are motivated by the work of Jesus. We are empowered by the work of Jesus. Because he is righteous, we can actually be righteous. The pollution has been, 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 we've been purified, and so we can live lives that are pure. And so when John is making the argument that, that we should stop sinning, he, he said back in chapter 1, that, that if you pretend to be without sin, to say, well, I'm not a sinner at all, I'm perfect, then you're lying to yourself. But then in this chapter, he's telling us, stop sinning. Don't sin at all. You should be a child of God. He, he's, not, he's not being inconsistent. He's saying, anytime you face sin in your life, you have the power to overcome it. Every sin you confront, you have every resource to destroy sin. Anytime you confront sin, you can choose righteousness. Now he says, now what you shouldn't do is be foolish enough to say you're good at doing that every time, to say that you're perfect at doing that. But what he's telling us is any sin you face is a sin that can be destroyed because Jesus is righteous because Jesus is pure, because Jesus is holy. See, our, our behavior here in this passage is put side by side with the very motivation we have. You are a sinner. Jesus is the Savior. You are polluted, but Jesus is pure. And so live lives. See, what, what, what one commentator says, he summarizes this. He says, the best defense against spiritual disaster is the aggressive pursuit of Christ. The best defense against spiritual disaster is the aggressive pursuit of Christ. See, we're not just supposed to to sort of stand there and say, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin, and think that in our own strength we can overcome it. No, cast aside sin 
and pursue Christ. Jesus is the one who is pure. And, and John gets so excited in this passage that, that in my translation, they had to add exclamation points for us to see it in verses 1 and 2. Because of what God has done, God's love is so great for us. L- l- listen again to, to, to chapter 3, verse 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. John is surprised that that's even a possibility for him to write down. When he stops and considers who he is in himself, a rebel against God, one who is lawless, he says, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are, children of God. See, that's our great hope, that God has welcomed us into his family, that he loved us enough, and, and so that one day we will be completely like Jesus. That's, that's verse 2. Dear, dear friends, we, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. See, John is saying you have everything you need right now, but you have a coming hope, that when Jesus comes again, you'll be like him. You will be perfectly pure and perfectly righteous. But he's saying it would be foolish. You would actually are misunderstanding the gospel if you just decide now of like, oh, wait, so like the end of the course, like I'm golden, like at the end of history, I'm getting an A plus. Well, then I don't need to do anything now, right? You just told me, you just told me I'm getting an A plus. See, don't you see how, maybe, maybe you don't think this way. Maybe you are better than I am. See, but I'm tempted to think, wait, if it's guaranteed, then I don't have to do diddly squat. I'm getting an A+. But, but what John is saying, how great is the Father's love that's been poured out, lavished on us? See, you actually don't understand the good news of what that is when you go from somebody who is a rebel against God to be called a child of God the only reasonable response would be to say, well, then I sh- that's what I should be like. That's, that's who I need to become. That's what I need to pursue. I need to be like Jesus. And one day I really fully, completely will be because he's coming again because I'm never going to get myself all the way there, even with the, the empowering work of the Spirit because sin still lingers in my, in my heart and my soul. I still live in a world that is broken, but I have the hope that I will be transformed. Charles Simeon pastored Trinity Church in Cambridge for 54 years, beginning in the year 1782, a prominent figure in in church history. But his ministry didn't begin well. when, When he first began to preach, he wasn't the preacher the church wanted. And so the wealthy members of the church decided they were not going to come. But they owned all of the pews, and so they padlocked them shut. They were pews that had doors on the end with with high walls. And so no one who came to church was allowed to sit in the pews. The only people that heard him preach were people that that came and sat in the aisles and along the the back of the the sanctuary. Now, I don't think I would tolerate that for like more than, well, not even once. But Simeon endured this for 12 years. And, and so he's rightly held up as this, as this spiritual giant, a man who just said, well, I'm going to outlast all of you. I'll stay for 54 years and keep preaching the gospel so that your hearts will be unlocked to the good news of the gospel, and then we'll unlock these doors on these pews so people can actually sit 
and hear God's word preached. And so he's rightly held up as this giant of the faith, this man who, who endured, who became like Jesus. But it's an incident early in his ministry that highlights our ongoing need to pursue Jesus right now. Because this great hero of the faith was not always wonderfully patient. He actually was described early in his ministry of being a little bit harsh and overconfident. And that wasn't by the people that weren't there. That was by the people that were showing up and listening to him. And so one day uh, early in his ministry, this is the way Pastor John Piper continues the story. He says, one day early in Simeon's ministry, he's visiting Henry Venn, who is a a, a gospel preacher in the next town over, a a man of, of stature who is mentoring him. And, and when, 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 when Pastor Simeon left to go home, Ven's daughters were fed up. And so they complained to their father about this terrible visitor. And so Ven took his daughters into the backyard, and, and, and maybe I like this story because it's a pastor just like making his children live out sermon illustrations, and so that's sort of the life of my children. But, but he takes his girls into the backyard, and he says to them, pick me one of those peaches, but it's much too early in the season for peaches. When he tells the story, he says, the time of peaches was not yet. And so the girls ask their dad, why would he want a green, unripe peach? And Ben replied, well, my dears, it is green now, and we must wait. A little more sun, a few showers, and the peach will be ripe and sweet. And so it is with Pastor Simeon. We are not yet what we will be. Some of us aren't close to ripe. So cling to Jesus. Pursue Jesus. See, but we are right now children of God. We will be perfect at the return of Christ, made perfect. And so pursue Christ Now, turn from sin. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Let me pray for us as we come to this table. Father, we rejoice in the power of the gospel, that it can take sinners, rebels, those who are lawless, those who are in league with the devil and make us children, children of God. So, Father, work in our hearts that we would love what you love. We would cling tightly to Jesus. Lord, I ask that you would transform our hearts, that we would be made to look like Jesus, that we would cling to the hope that Jesus is coming again. Father, even as we come to this table, prepare our hearts to to repent, to see our sin, to confess our need of Jesus. Let us see in this sacrament the hope of Jesus, our Savior. As we pray in Jesus' name, amen.